Ecclesiastes uh, 7, verse 23 to 8, verse 1, to the passage we read earlier, and let us pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that you are a God who speaks and who reveals yourself to us through your word, and we ask for the Holy Spirit to help us to hear what you are saying. Not just that we would be better informed, but that our lives might be shaped increasingly into the likeness of Jesus Christ, who is himself wisdom, wisdom from God, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, I have never preached through the book of Ecclesiastes before, and I've never preached through a book like Ecclesiastes before. Uh, yes, there are some parts of it which are a bit like Proverbs, some of it a bit like the story of Job, uh, but I don't think I've ever preached from a book so challenging, so ruthlessly honest, and at times hard to understand. And yet, as many of you, I think, have also found, and some of you have said this to me, also so relevant and so helpful. Because what we have in Ecclesiastes is both a, an exploration and a reflection. It's an exploration and reflection of what life under the sun is really like. And life under the sun has not changed, not really. Thinking back to chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, there is nothing new under the sun. Yes, we've made great strides in science and technology and medicine, but the question of how the scientist and the technologist and the doctor are meant to live or what life actually means, especially in the face of death, well, that's as pressing a question today, as relevant a question today as when Archimedes jumped out of his bath and ran naked down the street shouting Eureka, or when in the 17th and 18th century, General Wade said something must be done about the A9. Or maybe not. Well, we know, we know, we've seen this on a number of occasions from what the teacher himself has said, that Ecclesiastes is not a cynical view of life, but it is a brutally honest view of life, a life where chapter 7, verse 2, death is the destiny of everyone, and the living should take this to heart. It's a life where sometimes, verse 15, as we saw last week, the righteous perish in their righteousness and the wicked live long in their wickedness. A life where things happen that don't make sense to us, no matter how long we live or how hard we try to understand. And the teacher has tried very hard to make sense of life. And as he looks back over the things he has observed, he says in verse 23, all this I tested by wisdom, and I said, I am determined to be wise. I will be wise. But this was beyond me, far off. Whatever exists or whatever has been is far off and most profound. It's deep, deep, deep. Who can discover it? I turned my mind, the little word so is not there in the original, if it's in your translation, I turned my mind to understand, to investigate, and to search out wisdom and the scheme of things, and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. It's reckoned that we see and know only 5% of the universe we live in. 95% of the universe is stuff we don't see. 
we don't know and we can't understand. And how far, how far do you think have we explored this 5%, this 5% that we do see and know about? Well, Voyager 1, some of you will remember, Voyager 1 is a spacecraft that was launched back in 1977. And it's still traveling. And it's the most distant man-made or human-made object from Earth. And it's currently about 15 billion miles from Earth, or 24.4 billion kilometers. And that sounds impressive, doesn't it? I mean, if you had a car that went for 15 billion miles, that would be some car. But then you think about it, the Milky Way galaxy to which our solar system belongs measures 100,000 light years across. A single light year, one of those 100,000 light years, a single light year represents 5.8 trillion miles. Not billion, but trillion miles, or 9.5 trillion kilometers. So our galaxy, which is a small galaxy, by the way, our galaxy is 5.8 trillion times 100,000 miles wide. You can do the miles. And it's only one galaxy in a universe of two trillion galaxies. And that's the observable universe, the 5%. And Voyager 1 is apparently due to run out of steam next year or whatever else it runs on. See, our minds struggle to cope with what we already know of this universe. Who can understand it? But then think about the wisdom. Think about the wisdom with a capital W that is behind the universe, the creative force that made the universe out of nothing. A wisdom the Bible identifies as God. A wisdom which is revealed in Jesus Christ and is at work through Jesus Christ. The one, in fact, through him all things were made, as Colossians tells us, Colossians 1 verse 16. A wisdom which is behind all of life and at work in all of life. Is it so surprising that this wisdom is beyond us? Job says in Job 28 verse 20, Job says, where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds in the sky. Destruction and death say, only a rumor of it has reached our ears. God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells. He alone knows where it dwells. That raises a question. At least it raises a question in, in my mind. Given what Job says and what we've read even today in Ecclesiastes, is the teacher's, Kohelet's, pursuit of wisdom wise? Is his attempt to find a wisdom that can answer all the questions and puzzles of life, is that a wise thing to do? Or is it, in the end, another kind of folly and madness? After all, the teacher has already said back in chapter 1, verse 17, I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. Chasing after the wind. Is his desire 
to understand the scheme of things. Notice that phrase used in verse 25 and verse 27 to find out the scheme of things. Is this desire to understand the scheme of things itself one of the many schemes that mankind has gone in search of? End of verse 29. God created mankind upright, but they have gone in search of many schemes. You know, back in Genesis chapter 3, it was a desire, wasn't it, to be like God with a knowledge of good and evil. A, a knowledge of good and evil that Adam and Eve did not need in order to live well or to live wisely. It was that desire that led to the world becoming the kind of world that it is today. A world that we, along with the teachers, struggle to live in and to understand. And that was the first of many schemes that mankind or humankind went in search of. Many schemes that right up to the present day express the foolishness of our rebellion against God and our attempt to be like him. You see it, don't you, all through the Bible history. You see it in the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. You see it, bring it up a little bit more modern to the, to the 19th century, the German atheist philosopher Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche, who said, if there were gods, how could I bear not to be a god? How could I bear not to be a god? Nietzsche was the atheist son of a Lutheran pastor. And he wrote a book in 1888 called The Antichrist. Or it can also be translated The Antichristian. A book in which he despised Christianity for its weakness. He wrote that in 1888. In 1889, he collapsed with a mental breakdown at the age of 44 and lived his last 11 years in madness, signing himself the Crucified One. Now, there was a man with a brilliant mind who was a fool. That's what the Bible says. That is the Bible's verdict. It is the fool who says there is no God, Psalm 14, verse 1. There is an intellectual example of the stupidity of wickedness and the insanity and madness of folly, chapter 7, verse 25. And of course, there are other more mundane examples. Uh, the former health secretary here in Scotland, Michael Matheson, his mistake, his folly, if you like, was not that his sons used his iPad to watch football. That could happen to anybody. His folly was that he tried to cover up the truth about what had happened and why the £11,000 was a legitimate expense. But let's be honest. We can all think of times when we have done and said things that were wrong, and we later looked back and wondered how we could have been so stupid. Is that not what we say to ourselves? We look back at things we have done wrong, things we have committed, and we say, how could I have been so stupid? But that's what sin is. Stupid. Oh yes, it's attractive. The devil makes it attractive. Sometimes it is attractive. But it's stupid. And part of my job as your minister is to help you, as well as help myself, to remember that before we sin. And not after it. Sin is stupid. However attractive it may appear at first. So getting back to the teacher, is it possible that his quest for wisdom is not wise 
is not a wise quest. Well, yes, wisdom is better than folly, isn't it? Of course it is. But there is, a t there is always a danger of taking a good thing and making it a God thing. Ian Proven, one of the commentators, has said, even the pursuit of virtue, a virtue such as wisdom, even the pursuit of virtue, when it is the pursuit of control over God rather than the pursuit of God himself, is a form of false religion. It is false religion. And it is possible, not just to pursue wisdom, it is possible to pursue the wisdom of God without pursuing God himself. It is possible to look for the love of God without God himself, which is a pursuit that's bound to end in disappointment and frustration and ultimately eternally end in hell rather than heaven. Do you think that's too strong? Well, cast your minds back to what we read in Matthew chapter 7. Lord, Lord, did we not do miracles in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do miracles in your name? And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Surely Jesus is talking there about people who wanted the power of God. And in some ways, which we don't fully understand, it sounds as if they used some kind of power, but they did not know God. That's a little bit like the seven sons of Sceva in Acts. Well, it's true, isn't it, God? An important verse, it was one of Calvin's verses that he loved to quote when he put wise limits on his own knowledge and understanding. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children that we may follow the words of this law. And all of them. Don't, don't we have enough? Really, don't we have enough in God's word? And in Jesus Christ, God's word and God's wisdom incarnate, don't we have enough to get on with? To build our lives wisely on the rock? So let me ask you, as I ask myself, are there things that we, along with the teacher, find ourselves searching for and not finding? Verse 28, he was still searching but not finding. Are there things that we are searching for and not finding because we're not wise enough to know when to call a halt? Or when God says, that's not for you? The secret things belong. To me, says the Lord. Well, the teacher may not have found all that he's been looking for, and that's why we used the title, which some of you will recognize in my song from U2. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. But he has discovered some things in this passage, hasn't he? Four things. Firstly, verse 26, he has said, I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap, and whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. Now, the teacher is a man. If he'd been a woman, he could have said the same thing about some men being a snare and a trap. But he is a man. Is he talking about a literal woman? If he is, there's a certain irony if the teacher is indeed King Solomon, who ended up with 700 wives and 300 concubines. That was not wise of Solomon for all sorts of reasons. 
But it is possible, I don't know what you think about this, but it is possible that the teacher is talking in verse 26 about Madam Folly, the personification of foolishness. Um, for example, in Proverbs chapter 9, you've got Lady Wisdom in the first 12 verses, I think it is, and then following that, Lady Wisdom is contrasted with Madam Folly. And foolishness, Madam Folly, is pictured as an adulterous woman or a prostitute, a woman who says to those who have no sense, you know, to those who are stupid, to those who have no sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, food eaten in secret is delicious. But little do they know that the dead are there, that her guests are deep in the realm of the dead. Stolen water is sweet, food eaten in secret is delicious. But it's those who have no sense who go where the dead are. And I don't know who's listening to this online or later on, but I would just say, if we take it the literal, take the metaphor literally as it were, if you're having an affair or thinking of embarking on an affair, stop it. Don't do it. Stolen water is sweet and food eaten in secret is delicious, but it's madness. It leads to so much heartache and destruction, and you will look back and say, why was I so stupid? So watch out for Madame Folly, even if she comes dressed as a man. The second thing that the teacher has found out is in verse 27 and 28. In his attempt to make sense of life, adding one thing to another, searching and not finding, I found one man. The word upright is not there. The NIV has taken that from the verse that follows. They might be right. They might be wrong, but it's an interpretation of the text. I found one man among a thousand, but not one woman among them all. Well, what do you make of that? Well, again, we note that the teacher is a man, a man living 3,000 years ago, when what he says here would not have caused any comment. Uh, and again, we can imagine if this had been written by a woman, we can imagine the rules being reversed. A woman could say, well, I found one woman among a thousand, but not a, not a man among them all. And certainly today, isn't it true on TV and in many of the adverts and dramas, it's the woman who's the savvy one and it's the man who's slow-witted and stupid. But even as it stands, if you take what's written here at face value, it's hardly a ringing endorsement of the male of the species, is it? 0.1%, one in a thousand. And it may well be, as at least one commentator has suggested, that the teacher is actually referring to himself. You know, a thousand people is actually quite a lot of people. He's gone around looking for the meaning of wisdom, the meaning of life. Perhaps the only person he's found is himself. What's the third thing he has found out? Chapter 8, verse 1, he has found out. He asks, who is like the wise? Who knows the explanation of things? He says a person's wisdom brightens their face, makes their face shine, and changes its hard appearance. A couple of years ago, uh, one of us here made a profession of faith in Jesus and became a Christian. I'm not going to embarrass them by naming him or her. But when we told our children at the, the tea table 
one of them said straight away, their face looks different. And when we asked them, the other one agreed immediately, as if they weren't surprised that they had become a Christian, their face looked different. And when we asked what they meant, they said, it's softer. It's brighter. It's happier. Uh, in a world where millions of pounds are spent on facelifts and Botox, how about this for a free, environmentally friendly alternative? A, person a person's wisdom brightens their face, makes their face shine, and changes its hard appearance. And there is no wiser thing that any of us can do than embrace the wisdom of God in Jesus Christ. And that means accepting, doesn't it? Receiving and trusting in the Lord Jesus as our Savior and our Lord, building our lives on Him and His Word, and following Him all the days of our life under the sun. Because you see, the fourth thing that the teacher has found is what we already have referred to in verse 29. This only have I found. See, the word is there. See, look. This only have I found. God created mankind upright, but they have gone in search of many schemes. This is the foundational truth of humanity's long and often painful story. This is a fundamental truth that lies behind our history and so much of our experience. It's why, as we saw last week, chapter 7, verse 20, is true that there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins, because God created mankind upright, but they have gone in search of many schemes. And we saw last week from Romans 3, didn't we? But there is a hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ, because in him there is a righteousness that we receive by faith and is there for all who believe. This righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. But here's another comment on this particular section. Derek Kidner has said, since futility, if you like meaninglessness, um, vanity, the vanity of life, since futility was not the first word about our world, it does not have to be the last. It no longer has to be the last. Because God. Because God. And though verse 29 is the last word of Ecclesiastes chapter 7, it is not the last word of God's story of creation and redemption. He has sent his son, Jesus, to brighten our faces and to make them shine with the hope, the grace, the truth, the life, the wisdom of the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ, the righteous one who died for the righteous to bring us to God. Jesus Christ, the wise one who died for fools. Fools like you and me. To bring us to our senses and bring us back to our God. The Lord Jesus Christ, not one man among a thousand, but the only man among every man. The only human who has ever lived, who is able to turn us back from running after foolish schemes to seek the living God and in seeking Him to find Him and in finding Him to worship Him and in worshiping Him to enjoy Him. 
to enjoy him all the days of our lives under the sun and then forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that though many things are beyond us, they are not beyond you. And we thank you also, Father, that though we have gone in search of many schemes, sometimes even making virtue an idol and a God rather than you, the God who lies behind and is the source of all virtue. We thank you, Father, that you have sent your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as wisdom incarnate to rescue us from our foolishness, to save us from our sins and many schemes, and declare us righteous as we take our stand in him before your throne. Amen.